Hey everyone, welcome back. We've been on a bit of a break here at Wild Connection, the podcast, but we are back and this is the start of season two. To kick things off, we are talking penises, personality, and well, maybe even penises with personality. That's with our guest, Associate Professor Dr. J. Matt Hoke. Welcome to Wild Connection, the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Vertolin, but you can call me Dr. Jen. I'm a scientist and author that studies animal behavior. I'm passionate about animals, and I love helping people reconnect with nature to live better lives. This podcast is about you, other animals, and how we are connected in this wild and crazy thing called life. You can get the show notes and more on my website, jenniferverdelin.com, or on the podcast website, Wild Connection, the podcast hosted by Podbean. If you like the show, please subscribe to it so you never miss an episode. Okay, so why were we on break? Well, part of it was due to disability, and the other part was because I was in Iceland for a minute. When it comes to disability, I have been noticing a lot of wildlife with injuries that modify the way they move about and have to make a living. The same is true for us humans, and being disabled in STEM really drives home how there is a lack of accessibility, inclusivity, and accommodation for disabilities, especially out in the field kind of natural sciences. I'm sensing a podcast about this in the future. For now, my trip to Iceland is relevant to today's podcast. How so? Well, Iceland has kind of a phallic obsession. Now, I'm not talking a Jeff Bezos kind of preoccupation, but more of the phallic design that seems to be part of the natural landscape. Everywhere you look, there are rocks shaped like penises, often linked to historical archaeological sites. Then there were the human-erected monuments that strangely had a similar theme. And of course, we cannot forget about the Penis Museum. More on that during the episode. How does this all relate to today's podcast? Glad you asked. My guest is Associate Professor J. Matt Hoke. He is at Nova Southeastern University in the Department of Marine and Environmental Sciences. And he studies penises. Barnacle ones, fish ones, Yes, some fish do have a sort of penis, but I don't want to give it all away. So let's get going. All right, everybody, welcome back. I am excited to have a a fellow, well, we were grad students together at Stony Brook, uh, Dr. J. Matt Hoke. Thank you so much for being on the show. Happy to be here. Yeah, so so we both were at Stony Brook in the iconic ecology and evolution department together. Um, and you are now at Nova Southeastern in Florida. That's right, down in Fort Lauderdale. Right. How long have you been there? Uh, I've been here since uh, 2012, although I've been in South Florida since 2009. Okay. And, you know, I wanted to have you on the show for a lot of reasons because you do really excellent and interesting work that's fun to talk about. Before we start talking about that, though, one of the things that I like to have people do when they come on the show is talk a little bit about their background and how they became interested or um, went down this path of, of whatever it is they're doing. So can you share a little bit about how you um, got interested in science and how you decided this was what you wanted to do? Well, um, I guess the main 
thing that has drawn me to to uh, the field of scientific research is is just wondering about things and wanting to figure things out. And I got into uh, the the idea of studying evolutionary biology because I saw a lot of misinformation about evolution uh, growing up in the South. And I really wanted to apply uh, good rules of research into understanding our natural world and how things occur in the natural world. So it's really about wanting to find the right ways to answer questions. Okay. And you ask some interesting questions, um, but I'm curious because you're in the field of the natural world and evolution, uh, and this show is called Wild Connection, which is really talking about how we're connected to other species and to the natural world. Um, How do you connect with nature? And do you get to spend a lot of time in nature doing your job? Uh, get to spend a lot of time in nature doing my job. I do a lot of field work in the Everglades and ecosystems connected to the Everglades. Uh, It's hard work in South Florida because it is hot and sunny. So we always have to make sure to, uh, to bring lots of water and electrolytes and lots of sunscreen. Uh, But lately the way that I've connected with nature the most is by bringing my children out to nature with me. I have uh, two five-year-old little girls and I like to take them to our local parks and boardwalks I'm trying to teach them all the birds in our area and they're getting pretty good at it. They also know most of our lizards around here too. Yes. Well, uh, you, you are a bit of a avid uh, lizard catcher. uh, Can I say, (laughs) Um, which maybe we'll talk about a little later, but I kind of want to start diving into some of your research because I think it's fascinating. And, and, and one of the things is that we get to, as scientists, right, we get to ask kinds of questions that we're interested in answering. And would it be fair to say that broadly you study the reproductive ecology of other species? And if that is accurate, what does that mean? I would say that that's one of my main areas of research is uh, trying to understand how organisms are able to maximize their number of offspring, given the constraints of either the physical environment or of their life histories. So when we, we think about something like a barnacle that wants to mate, what physical forces put uh, a stress on that barnacle when it's trying to find a mate. And uh, as I'm sure you know, since you've probably seen my papers, one of the physical constraints they have is uh, since barnacles use a long penis to stretch out to their mates, crashing waves or something that get in the way of them reproducing with each other. And with another uh, of my research organisms, mosquito fish, uh, the mosquito fish I work on in the Everglades, their life history involves seasonal migration. And so seasonal migration in and out of places that dry out every year is something that prevents them from, from mating as efficiently because they actually reproduce by copulation with a modified fin. So that fin places constraints on how well they're able to migrate. Okay. You have touched on a lot of interesting things, but the two that jump out at me are long penis of a barnacle and a modified fin that acts like a penis. So we're going to talk about penises. <laughs> now you zeroed in on barnacles. I know in your early work and, and are still probably, I don't know, are you still doing work on barnacles? Uh, I am. Okay. So, so they have proportionally, um, the largest penis relative to body size, or at least a particular species does, or do all barnacles have this? 
Well, the barnacle that has the longest penis of all animals relative to its body size is a boring barnacle. That's a barnacle that, that bores into coral. And that particular barnacle and its exceptionally large penis size was actually first noted by Charles Darwin. In one of his early books, Before the Origin of Species, he, he wrote about the taxonomy of barnacles. And he actually is the first person to have identified their extremely long penises. Um, the second place animal is actually a slug, uh, a slug that hangs out of trees by its penis while it mates. Okay. So wait, okay. How does it mate if it's actually hanging by its penis? It's, it's hard to tell looking at the images, but uh, it seems like you have two hermaphroditic slugs hanging around, hanging out of a tree by their penis while the penises twist around each other uh, and they hang down. I haven't okay. studied the animal in person. It's a European slug. Okay. This sounds like a, a fun uh, toy that could be replicated for <laughs> humans. Um, so now, okay, you already mentioned you weren't the first to be fascinated with barnacles and their anatomy. Um, you did just mention uh, with the slugs that they're hermaphrodites. And I, I know that um, you've, you've reported and, and talked about in your work uh, that the barnacles are also hermaphrodites. So, but they're a special type, uh, at least one of the species that you studied, a, a simultaneous hermaphrodite. So can you help us understand, first of all, what does it mean to be a hermaphrodite? And then what does it mean to be a simultaneous hermaphrodite? Well, uh, hermaphrodite generally means an organism that is male and female at some points in its life. Well, some hermaphrodites are something like the clownfish, like in Finding Nemo, uh, where they start their lives as male and they switch to being female at a certain point in their life. I always use that as an example when I'm uh, teaching about that in, in class, because most of the students have seen Finding Nemo. But what they don't realize is that Marlin probably should have transitioned to a female after Nemo's mother was eaten. Uh, that's a sequential hermaphrodite. So they change sex at some point. Simultaneous hermaphrodite is a, an organism that is both sexes at the same time. And that's what barnacles are. When you think about the life, the life history or the lifestyle of a barnacle, they're glued down in one place. And if they're glued down in one place and they only have a small number of neighbors or a single neighbor, if they're hermaphrodites, there's a 100% chance that their neighbor is going to be a potential mate. Whereas for organisms that have separate sexes, if you have only two individuals in the population, there's some chance that they'll be the same sex and will be able to produce offspring. Okay, so that's some of the, the practical applications or benefits, really, for being a simultaneous hermaphrodite when you are stuck in one space. And as a way of making a living at reproducing, are there any other advantages for the barnacle to being a hermaphrodite? Uh, yeah, one of the other major advantages for the barnacle is that they brood their eggs. So after the eggs are fertilized, the early states of larval development occur inside their shell. And there's limited space within that shell. So you can essentially think of all the open space inside that conical barnacle shell as being crammed with eggs and larvae after they mate. But barnacles live in an environment that's potentially really rich in food source. They eat phytoplankton and zooplankton, and there's lots of that. So they have a lot of excess energy. And so if they have allocated as much as they can to producing offspring in the form of eggs, but they have leftover energy, they have enough food to continue to 
allocate or invest energy in producing offspring. They can take that excess energy and invest it into building uh, sperm, building the male reproductive system and building a penis. So they can continue to mate even after they've completely filled up their brooding space with eggs. So that's another way that they can continue to enhance their fitness as measured by the number of offspring they leave behind. Right. So if your house is full, you can go fill up someone else's house still. Exactly. (laughs) Now, inquiring minds, I'm sure at this point, want to know. And we're going to talk about other things about barnacles that are cool. But let's be honest, this is pretty cool. So why is their penis so darn big? Well, their penis is big because, as I already mentioned, they have to live their entire lives glued down to one spot. So if they're going to reliably fertilize their neighbors, there's basically a couple ways that sessile or non-moving animals can do it. Some of them broadcast spawn where they release their sperm into the water and they just hope that that sperm finds an egg. But if they can direct that sperm uh, immediately to the eggs, you're going to have a lot greater contact between sperm cells and egg cells. And so the barnacle's penis basically acts as a muscular delivery system for this. So they, they can extend it from their shells. They can reach it about up to 10 times their body length uh, away, which might be, uh, you know, it doesn't seem like a lot to us, but 10 or 20 centimeters is a pretty good distance for a barnacle. And then they can deliver that sperm right on top of the eggs of the individual that they're mating with. And the penises themselves are covered with uh, bristles that have the ability to sense smell and chemical cues. So they can actually search for mates with the penis as, as well as delivering sperm with the penis. So it's kind of like a submarine periscope almost. Uh, a periscope is a good, a good way to describe it. Um, Charles Darwin described it as proboscoform. Okay. He meant, that, he meant that it's like the trunk of an elephant. Okay. Do they have as much control as a trunk of an elephant over the movement of their penis when they're trying to reach another barnacle? Well, that's interesting. And actually they don't. And that's because if you look at the musculature of an elephant trunk, uh, they have a lot of complex muscles in that trunk. The musculature inside a barnacle penis is actually a lot more simple. They don't have circular muscles inside the penis. Uh, Those are muscles that can help the penis to elongate. They only have longitudinal muscles. So they can basically steer, but the only way they can stretch it out is by by basically inflating it like a balloon with, uh, with their body fluid. They don't have the ability to do any finer control than that. Okay. So they basically like just swing it around and, and swing it in a direction, but they don't have much more control than that. Okay. Now you mentioned they had these bristles that can have receptors on them where they can sort of smell. So how do they find a friendly barnacle to reproduce with? And more importantly, how does a fellow barnacle indicate that it's kind of feeling the same way? Well, the biochemistry of it is not exactly worked out, but it is um, suspected that a barnacle that's ready to become receptive in the female function, that is the barnacle that's ready to have its eggs fertilized, uh, releases some kind of pheromone into the water that the bristles on the penis can detect. And you can see a taxis, like a directed uh, movement of barnacle penises towards individuals that are receptive. And a lot of times there'll be multiple males or multiple functional males, hermaphrodites acting as males, reaching out uh, for a single receptive individual at the same time. And they kind of compete with it and they knock each other away. And uh, there's also a lot of sperm competition where they just try to overflow the, the brood cavity with sperm so that there's just the only sperm left. 
Okay, wait. So there's sword fights. There's barnacle sword fights underwater. You know, that's a good way to describe it. Okay, that my my view. Th- there's an action packed, you know, thing going on underwater there, or or barely underwater. Uh, they're tidal, right? Or uh, some barnacles are under tidal. There are also subtitle barnacles. Okay. Okay. So there, there, basically, there's a lot of drama going on. I would never have imagined penis fights and barnacles. But, um, here yeah, com- actually, uh, one of my graduate students right now is doing research on barnacle reproduction on sea turtle shells. Oh. And so they have an additional constraint when they're sword fighting, which is that they're living on a sea turtle that is swimming around and creating current. So while they reach out for uh, a mate, they're also being con- constrained by the currents of the swimming sea turtle. And sometimes the sea turtles will try to knock the barnacles off their back. So it's an extra layer of challenge for those barnacles. Seems to me like, okay, now I'm, I know I'm going off on a tangent here, but now that I'm realizing that barnacles are attaching onto sea turtles and sea turtles are swimming around, then it limits the population that those particular uh, barnacles can interact with, right? I mean, it's basically going to be other barnacles on the sea turtle. You really have to imagine a complex larval uh, life cycle for these barnacles because once they're swimming larvae, uh, before they settle into an adult sessile barnacle, they have to find a sea turtle. And so these larvae are just swimming around in the water column, waiting to find the right sea turtle. And they're actually really selective about what species of sea turtle they'll, they'll jump onto. So I think that uh, they must be able to survive as larvae for a really long time. Otherwise, it's hard to imagine very many would be able to find an adult a turtle to settle into an adult on top of. Wow. I, I just didn't, now I can't get the image out of my mind of just a sea turtle gracefully swimming through the water and these particle larvae trying to get attached onto them and hitch a ride. Um, okay. One other question. Well, I have a lot of questions, but with all of these barnacles extending out their penises and potentially competing with other barnacles um, for access to, you know, deposit their sperm and fertilize the eggs. Do some, do all of them have a big one or are some barnacles more well endowed than others? Oh, we see a lot of variation in that. And a lot of that comes from the environmental constraints of the places that they live. So if you imagine a barnacle that's living in calm water in a dense population, they really don't have to reach very far to find mates and to deposit all the sperm they can produce into uh, receptive mates. And so those barnacles, they don't waste the energy expenditure of building an exceptionally large penis. They're in calm water. Their mates are close, so they can have a small penis that doesn't have very many muscles. But if you look at barnacles living in an area of lots of wave action, they're constrained by those waves. And one way that they can overcome that constraint is by building more muscular penises and stronger penises. So that requires them to invest in a larger penis. And if their mates are farther away, they can actually compensate for that too and build a longer, more, uh, a longer penis that's able to stretch to more distant mates. So they really have flexibility when, uh, when they're trying to build their penis based on the, both the social condition and the physical condition that they're in. Okay. Well, you, you also mentioned 
another species uh with a modified and now so now we're switching to fish we went we got we were on barnacles and another species you're studying is mosquito fish and you mentioned that they have this sort of modified fin that they kind of use as a penis is that correct so mosquito fish are from the live bearing family of fish they have internal fertilization and instead of laying eggs they have live birth but fish don't have penises, so the way that the mosquito fish are able to deliver their sperm is with a modified fin. It's, uh, if you are interested in fish fins, it's the anal fin. And it's modified into a long structure that injects the sperm called a gonopodium. And the structure itself is really interesting. It's a fin, but it's, it's a different shape than the fins on the females because they're not using it for swimming. They're using it uh, as a penis-like organ. And because they're fish in the water, they're potentially disturbed by currents and things like that. It's actually covered with hooks so that they can hold themselves to the female while attempting to deliver the sperm. Okay. So first back up. So no fishes have penises. Uh, not in the same way that we would think of a penis in a mammal or uh, invertebrate. It's uh, in most cases, it's a modified fin of some sort. Uh, if we really want to jump back and look at the evolution of sperm delivering structures, any organ or structure that delivers sperm for internal fertilization, the name for that is an intromittent organ. And intromittent organs have evolved lots of different times in the animal kingdom. And when we look at the diversity of intromittent organs amongst different, uh, different animals, we can see that they've evolved in lots of different ways. And everybody here that's listening to this podcast is probably a mammal. And so the, let, let's say the biologically male individuals of those mammals have kind of what we would think of as this, at least from a human perspective, this, the standard penis. But something like an alligator has what's called a hemipene, which are kind of two muscular flaps that fit together and then flex in a way that there's a temporary tube in between that acts as an intermittent organ. And with fish, they use their, uh, their, their modified anal fin as an intermittent organ. And if you look across different types of animals, you find lots of different ways that these intermittent organs are built, but they all have the, the same purpose, which is to reliably deliver sperm to eggs. Okay. You know, I ha I, I'm going to probably make it this year, maybe depending on the, you know, global pandemic and whether or not the museum is open, but there's a penis museum in Iceland and they- I've actually been there. You have. Okay. So it is basically a museum full of intermittent organs. That's right. And they mostly specialize on uh, native animals to Iceland, but they have, uh, I remember seeing uh, walrus, whale, lots of different species of whales. They have a human penis that was donated from an uh, Icelandic man who was very proud of it. Uh, and he left it to the museum upon his death. Well, many, uh, you know, I would say that well, I'm probably anthropomorphizing here, but many species could be proud of their intermittent organs. Um, uh, actually, while I was there, I uh, <laughs> I collected and prepped some slides of barnacle penises from Iceland for them. Oh. I don't know if they actually put them on display. Fantastic. Well, and I'll make sure in the show notes that I put a link to that museum so folks can uh, add that to their list of places to visit because it's fascinating. Um and your work is fascinating. And so back to this mosquito fish, you mentioned that this modified anal fin also has hooks on it so they can hang on to the female. So tell me a little bit, if you know, like what makes a female willing to let a male hooker fin into him and does it hurt? Well, 
With mosquito fish, we see a lot of what behavioral ecologists refer to as harassment. And the male mosquito fish, uh, they harass the females to an embarrassing degree. And when you have them in the lab, in an aquarium, for example, you'll see the males swimming around, following the female mosquito fish. And the way they try to entice the female mosquito fish is by using the penis itself as a signal. So they can extend it. They basically stretch it out and display it to the female. And uh, there's a lot of work from other researchers that show that females prefer males that have larger intermittent organs as a signal. That's something that's pretty common in fish. Uh, females prefer larger fish. Usually they prefer, and in sword tails, they prefer fish with a, a larger tail. That's actually a live bearing fish too. And so the females prefer the, the larger ones, but there are situations where there are so many males harassing the females that it becomes dangerous for the females. And in taking evasive action against these harassing males, it leaves the female vulnerable to things like predators. So it, it can be a problematic thing for the female fish. There's a lot of uh, what we would call sexual conflict in mosquito fish uh, because the males are so harassing. Luckily for the females, uh, mosquito fish have a really skewed sex ratio. There's a lot more females than males. Yes, it is a, a constant problem for females of many species to experience harassment by enthusiastic, uh, at least in the animal kingdom, I'll, you know, the other animal kingdom, I'll use the uh, enthusiastic male um, because it doesn't have the same moral or ethical um, or legal implications that it has uh, in, in humans. So the, now you said that the modified fin, they don't use it for swimming. Um, but uh, presumably there's variation in the size because females prefer larger ones. Does it alter anything about like what um, about their ability to move? I know you're you're starting to look at, you know, the influence of variation in this fin on the life history or the success of individuals. Can you talk about does it affect their ability to move? Well, we don't have. Uh, results on this yet because it's a new project, but we are looking in the Everglades ecosystem uh, as to how variation in the size and shape of the gonopodium fin affects the ability of the mosquito fish to migrate. So just to back up a little bit in the Everglades, uh, there's an annual wet season and dry season. And during the dry season, huge, huge areas of wetland dry out. And then in the wet season, they refill again. And the mosquito fish rapidly recolonize the refilled areas because they're really rich in terms of the resources that the mosquito fish need. That involves them making pretty long distance migrations. I mean, if you think of a two centimeter or one inch long fish, they, they might be migrating for dozens of kilometers or up to 10 miles or so. And that kind of swimming, we can imagine it places some kind of physiological constraint and that even subtle differences in the ability to swim might make large differences in their ability to move that far in a short period of time. So what we've done so far is just started cataloging how the structure of the gonopodium varies in different parts of the Everglades. And what we found is that there are some areas where the um, gonopodiums are on average larger for fish of a given body size and some areas where they're smaller. Uh, we've also looked at the shape of the gonopodium, and we've seen that there are, are some places where the, the gonopodium is, is thinner and longer and other places where it's shorter and blunter. Okay. So what we're doing now 
is looking to see if there's a functional difference on that. So we're doing mating trials in the lab to see if, if those fish with longer gonopodiums have higher mating success. But we're also doing swimming trials in the lab. We're placing the fish inside of a, that's basically a tube where we can generate a controlled current and see how long they can swim at a given speed and see if there's variation in their ability to reach a maximum speed or to respond to a, a predator. This is really neat. And another thing that you have also worked on, because we share a mutual interest um, in personality, but we study really different types of organisms, right? So I, I think people understand that, you know, social animals like cats or dogs, wolves, chimps, they have personality, but fish, they might raise an eyebrow. So talk to me a little bit about, and maybe not if they have a, um, you know, an aquarium at home, uh, they may readily accept that fish have personality, but, but talk to me about personality and fish and, and what that means. Well, when, when I think about personality and fish, I don't think about an entire personality, personality, like you might describe in psychology. Instead, what I look at are personality traits that, that can be measured along a continuum. So for mosquito fish, one of the ones that I'm most interested in is the boldness shyness continuum. So we, we will look at how willing a fish is to accept risk uh, versus how, how a fish would much rather stay hidden and remain in a sheltered area. And so one of the things that we have found in the Everglades is that the fish in areas that have, have dried out and reflooded, the fish that we colonize them are the bolder fish. We find bolder species there. So we find more mosquito fish, which are relatively bold species. We find fewer of their competitors like bluefin killifish. They're much shyer fish and they're much less likely to accept the risk of migrating across the landscape. And then within mosquito fish, we find bolder mosquito fish in those areas that have reflooded. And the shyer mosquito fishes tend to stay in more permanent water. We can almost think of this boldness as just being more likely to make that migration. Okay, but how do you how do you measure it in a in a mosquito fish? Like how do you decide that that fish is a bolder fish? So the way that we've been approaching this is with laboratory experiments. We go out to different areas of the Everglades, bring a bunch of fish back to the lab, and we have uh, what can best be described as mazes set up. We start the fish in a little shelter and we open it up and we look at how willing that fish is to leave the shelter, how long it takes the fish to decide to explore the new environment. When it's exploring the new environment, we can look at how much time it spends next to artificial shelters versus time in the open. Uh, and we can also look at how much time it takes the fish to approach a food bait and uh, use those times and look at the proportion of the environment that the fish explores as, as like kind of an index for how bold the fish is. A bolder fish is more likely to enter more unexplored areas of the maze, whereas a shy fish is more likely to stay still and stay under a shelter. Now you, uh, that, that's really interesting. And, and, you know, I've done bold shy continuum work on lemurs and use very much the same thing. So I also use, um, response to a novel person, uh, you know, response to a novel object, um, how much time they spend in a particular quadrant of their enclosure. Um, so, so there's a lot of similarities there. Now, I'm aware that mosquito fish are considered invasive in some areas, That's um, true. right? Particularly in California, I think. Um, uh, and, and some research there also suggested that bolder mosquito fish are the ones that disperse and spread. 
And so it sounds like you found uh, a similar thing potentially in the Everglades. Right. Except the difference is they're native here. Okay. The reason that they're so invasive in a lot of the world is because they are pretty efficient controllers of mosquito larvae. And so they've been introduced to a lot of ditches and, and drainage canals and irrigation systems to reduce the reproductive rates of mosquitoes. Right. But then they've invasive species are ones that have transitioned from being non-native to an area to being somewhat problematic to an area. So they don't just eat mosquito larvae in, in everywhere they are. You know, their name would imply that they love mosquito larvae, but they actually will choose native insect larvae before they'll eat mosquito larvae. I think they get more nutrition from, from different insects and they'll move to mosquitoes when there's nothing else left. You know, what I love about the work that you're doing is it's all very, you know, um, looking at the, the functional value or functional effect of, of differences in species. And this kind of circles back to your, your passion for um, thinking about evolution and thinking about how to talk about or answer questions in evolution. So how has this work that you've done shaped the way you communicate about evolution to others that can help, you know, undo some of those really big misconceptions that people have about what that means? Well, I think one of the the important things is that when you're working on animal reproduction and and penis evolution, um, it's a a topic that can make people giggle. Um, But once they get past that initial giggle, it's a topic that really makes people think about things. And when we think about natural selection, we have to think about two major things. And that is the ability to survive in the environment and the ability to reproduce in the environment. And uh, the work with especially mosquito fish really gets into both because we're looking at how that variation in penis affects their ability to use their environment, to migrate across it, but also it affects their ability to gain mates. And so when people start putting these things together, it makes the concept of natural selection a little more palatable for people that haven't really thought about it or for people from backgrounds that are uh, maybe more likely to reject it outright. But when we just think about, okay, this, this mosquito fish that has the appropriate gonopodium morphology for its environment is going to leave more offspring behind and thus there will be more fish with that gonopodium style in the next generation. That's a, a pretty simple to grasp uh, example of natural selection. And, you know, I think that people think or believe that humans are not impacted by natural selection or those processes. And, and so, in fact, even in human penis morphology, there is variation and that variation um, is not random. <laughs> and, and so, so I love the work that you're doing. It's accessible. It's interesting. And, um, you know, do you have any other, uh, projects that you're working on that we can look forward to hearing about in the future? Well, uh, actually my next big project is going to be a little more community ecology based, uh, rather than, uh, genital morphology based. I'm actually going to be working on the effects of invasive plants in the Everglades on the fish community. So that's one of the big projects I'll be doing for the next few years. But we'll still be looking at the gonopodiums of all the fish that we catch. Well, and what are some of the big invasive plants that we worry about in the Everglades? Uh, The uh, one that I'll be working on is water hyacinth. It's a floating plant. It's actually got really beautiful flowers. And that's the reason it's become invasive, because people would use it 
as a decorative plant in ponds and in canals, but it grows out of control, especially in areas like Lake Okeechobee, where there's a lot of nutrient pollution. And so the plant takes over waterways, it shades out uh, seagrass and uh, kind of chokes things out pretty badly. And so we're going to look at how controlling that water hyacinth affects the, the community of fish living underneath it. Okay, that's exciting. Well, uh, again, Dr. J. Matt Hope, thank you so much for coming on the show, for sharing your very cool research. And um, again, I will put the link to the museum in Iceland on the website. And if you want to uh, keep up with with uh, J. Matt's work, you can uh, follow him on his social media. And I'll make sure I have links for that on the show notes as well. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It's great to talk to you. Okay, that was the show, and it was a lot of fun. Let's talk, though, for a minute about Iceland, their museums, and the plethora of intermittent organ symbols all over the country. As I mentioned, I was recently there, and it's a place I love for the nature, the people, and the cultural history. When in Iceland, something you might notice is that there are a lot of museums. There are tiny ones dedicated to roses, and large ones like the Reykjavik Art Museum. And then there is the Phallological Museum in Reykjavik that J. Matt and I were discussing. For two evolutionary biologists, you can imagine the thrill and fascination. But I would encourage everyone, if you visit Iceland, to explore this gem of a museum. I've got the website up in the show notes. And let me tell you, they are committed to the theme. They even serve waffles in the shape of penises. For a mere $20, you will get a lesson in evolution and have a lot of fun shopping the gift store. Then, as you head out around the country, you will notice that the phallus appears naturally in rock formations and artificially in human-constructed monuments. Like the Amazon symbol, once you start seeing it, you simply can't unsee it, and it is everywhere. I've put a few photos in the show notes for your take on this. And don't forget, you can find the show notes on my website, jenniferverdalen.com, or on the podcast website, Wild Connection, the podcast, hosted by Podbean. And please, if you're enjoying the show, support us and subscribe to it so you'll get notified every time a new episode comes out. And don't forget to share it so others can find it too. You can follow the show on iTunes, Google Play, and wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can also follow the show on Twitter at WildConnectPod. If you want to follow me, you can follow me on Twitter at RealDrJen. Thanks for listening. And we'll be back next week with another great episode.